Welcome to the Never Settle podcast. My name is Mel Clark and I am passionate about helping people realize that settling for second best is no longer an option and that everyone deserves to live the life they truly desire. Hey, hey, hey. So today's episode comes from the wonderful Philip Webb. Philip is a serial entrepreneur and businessman. He's also a three book author. Um, Philip talks to us today about his childhood, about semantics when he was growing up, about the love and affection and respect he has for his father, who was his main mentor. And yeah, how he basically went from, you know, fighting to get that chessboard that was a family heirloom, which you'll figure out in the uh, in the story, to going to IBM, making that a huge success and then becoming his own um, boss, if you like. And he ended up building a company that was buying and selling computer parts and he ended up selling it for over six million, I think it was. Um, but uh, Philip was, I was drawn to Philip. I saw him or heard him on another podcast and he talked about how important purpose, values, core values, vision and mission are for every business. And obviously that is what I do in my day job as a coach. Um, knowing your core values is hugely powerful in every situation that you have in life. And so I reached out to Philip and asked him to come on because I was interested to hear his perspective on it. He also works as a consultant for businesses in terms of um, really getting down to the crux of what the issues are. And usually that is from being able to um, communicate with the workforce and allow them to report in anonymously so they can basically report what the problems are in that organization and ultimately get them sorted, which um, is a fascinating story as well. So yes. Um, Philip is a, a great guest, it was very entertaining, so as always, wherever you are, taking a walk, uh, in the car, or just sitting there with a cup of tea, enjoy. Well, hello lovely listeners, uh, today I have the great honour of chatting with Philip Webb. Philip Webb is the founder and MD of Investors in Community, which is a digital SaaS platform built on blockchain technology, which is obviously the buzzword of the moment, and it enables businesses and individuals to donate, volunteer and gift to charity and community initiatives that matter to them. Um, I've already had the pleasure of speaking to Philip briefly, and I understand a little bit more about this, and it's an amazing, amazing platform. So if you get the opportunity to go and have a look at this, or if something that's interesting you um, interests you, then I definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, Philip also built his first business, and I don't know what that business is, um, uh, to 6.4 million in four years, and was mentored by one of business management's finest minds and creator of the SWOT analysis, Albert Humphrey. And I know that Philip and Albert became partners and friends over the years. It was quite an unusual um, friendship, I think. And and in the end, when Albert passed away, he, he basically left all of his into intellectual protocol that's not the right word property sorry um to philip uh, in terms of the work that he created over his lifetime which I've, i did hear some of that story on bethan's um podcast which i loved um so i'm interested to hear a bit more about albert and um yeah so philip is basically a, a serial entrepreneur an amazing businessman very heart-centered person um, and an all round nice guy. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this chat. So thank you so much for being here today, Philip. 
Well, I'm blushing at the introduction now. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> um, right. Well, I, I love to know more about my guests. Um, I'm always intrigued as to what made the successful person that, or, you know, or what pivoted in your life, you know, because some of my guests have, <clears throat> a bit like me, you know, get into the corporate rat race and all the rest of it and then decide that that just doesn't cut the mustard and they want something with more purpose. So, so yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more about your backstory, Philip. Well, how far back do you want to go, Mel? <laughs> I, I don't mind. I, I love to know, like, you know, what, what was it you wanted to be as a kid? And does that even marry up anywhere close to what you've done in your life? And, you know, you know, education and all of that. How did it all sort of drive through? Yeah, OK, well, it, it sort of does match in a way. I was, as a kid, I'll go back to sort of the eight, nine, ten year old kid painfully shy by the way yeah me too uh, really shy I wouldn't have said boo to a goose didn't speak to a girl so I was 18 uh, <laughs> it was one of those really shy people and I was always into books I read prolifically as a, as a child with the, we were allowed three library books a week from the local library and I always got three and I finished them by Wednesday it was, uh, it was I just prolifically read I, th I thoroughly enjoyed books mm. um, so a lot of my childhood was based on that I was a chess player uh, my dad taught me chess when I was about seven and um we had this little thing in our family, actually, and I guess this is the spark of the entrepreneur competitiveness coming out now. We had this little thing in our family. My grandfather had a chess set. It was only a little ordinary little wooden one, very plain, uh, but it was my grandfather's. And uh, when, when the, the rule says when the person in the family beats the person that owns the chess set, it passes to them. So it naturally passed to my dad. And I tried, like, like anything, to beat my dad over several years, actually, of getting better and better. I joined the chess club at school. I became the chess champion at the junior school and I still couldn't beat him. And uh, I know I forget the fateful day when it was actually the Cambridge and Oxford rowing race. And I was a bit distracted looking at that at the same time as trying to beat my dad. And finally I realized I had him and, I, and that was it. It was the most euphoric moment. As I, <laughs> and the, the chess set passed to me. And uh, you? Can you I, I was, um, I think I was 12, I think. Um, oh, brilliant. 11 or 12. I was a young kid, but uh, it was an, an amazing moment. We stuck in my mind through all my life, really. But I guess that brings us back to my influences. And my dad clearly is, is one of the biggest influences in my life. Um, he's, he's a great guy. He took himself with no qualifications from a door-to-door -door salesman back in the, in the 60s uh, to become an international director of uh, Maytag Corporation, which owns Hoover UK, et cetera, et cetera. So he went to the top with nothing behind him apart from his own guile and tenacity and innovation. He's a fantastic marketeer. Um, he, I don't know if you remember the Hoover vacuum cleaners and the it beats as it sweeps as it cleans. There's a little oh, yeah, jingle that works too, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's my dad. Um, oh, the, you know, the air freshener nozzle that you turned up for air freshener that was his invention and things like this yeah. um he was always doing something he renovated houses he got his hands dirty he was a tradesman by by background and he taught me the tools of the day carpentry but i was also into electronics and uh, i love the idea of electronics and computers um so much so that when i was at school writing a um, an essay on uh, on silicon chips that's right and uh, they let the teacher clearly know the difference between a silicon chip and a microprocessor. So I educated him. <laughs> that was the wrong thing. So, and he said, uh, I want two and a half sides. Well, I wrote about 20. I was, I was hypothesizing about the future of technology wow. and what it's going to do for us. And he, he gave me a fail. And he said, I asked for oh. two and a half sides. He just clearly had this thing with me and I didn't like him very much. So, so I had to condense my, my whole essay into two and a half sides, which I thought was awful. Yeah. But I was always into technology. Um, 
I went through school wanting to be something in technology, electronics, computers, or the idea of computers in those days fascinated me. And uh, I was always into technology. I, I love reading The Tomorrow People, if any of your listeners remember The Tomorrow People. I never I'll read it myself, that. but I do remember it, yeah. The early 70s TV show, the fantastic idea that telekinesis could actually happen. And I was firmly convinced I could make stuff move with my mind if I concentrated enough. Um, <laughs> I still so think that now, Philip. I'm trying all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you a funny story, actually, when I was about 10, actually, because I was firmly convinced I was watching The Tomorrow People and everything else. And, uh, there was this thing on the radio. Radio One said, we're waiting for our first ever colour broadcast on the radio. And I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. And so they said, close the curtains. So I closed the curtains and I sat on the floor with the radio in front of me. And it said, right now, just watch carefully. You're going to see colours around the radio. I said, I can see them. Oh. Well, my parents were laughing their head off. It was the 1st of April, wasn't it? And I oh. felt like hook, line and sinker. But <laughs> technology <laughs> and the application of it was just a fascinating concept. So I was always in my life. Technology, bit of an entrepreneurial spark from a dad. Um, practical with tools, built go-karts for myself, built dens in the fields and, and hammer and nails and saws and all sorts of things. So very sort of practical, very happy childhood, really. My dad was the leading figure in my life and... Uh, it was fantastic. So got to the age of 16 at a clutch of A-levels, about nine of them, so O-levels, about nine O-levels. So I thought, right, um, applied to a college. I didn't want to do A-levels. So I went to the uh, Kitson College of Technology in Leeds, where it's a fantastic course, taught me everything from welding to electronics and everything in between. So it was an electromechanical engineering course at diploma level, which is the same as A-levels. So I sort of scraped through that because I sort of lost interest halfway through in the academia side of it. And uh eventually got my diploma then I thought right I'll go and be a software program in the days when software was a dark art and nobody knew anything about it um so I thought I'll, I'll apply for interviews I got some interviews that took they wanted Fortran programmers and I thought well, I have no idea what Fortran is so I looked it up in a book picked up a few buzzwords went for the interview as a sort of 18 year old kid and um, didn't get the jobs 52 jobs later I thought hmm uh, my uncle then turned around and said, well, have you thought about engineering? He says, from a computer sense, he said, because he was a computer engineer. Uh, so he sort of gave me a few ideas. So I applied for a few jobs. And fortunately, I got a job after a whole two days of interviews and practical tests with IBM. Oh, yeah. I was uh, pretty much over the moon at actually. Yes. And, uh, we were living in Charlton St. Peter in Buckinghamshire. And uh, this offer letter came through and it was £7,000 a year, which is a great salary in those days in the early 80s company car company cavalier I thought brilliant and uh, and it's in Brentford and I thought it's just up the road this is amazing thank you very much I wrote that to them. thank you I'm accepting and uh, I showed a few people my offer letter I was proud as punch for this and one of my friends said I said Phil doesn't say Brentford it says Brentwood <laughs> I thought well where the hell's Brentwood you know it's in Essex isn't it so that's how I accidentally left home at 19 <laughs> and uh, rented myself a flat and then bought my first flat at 19 and uh Settled into a wonderful career with IBM as an, as an electrical mechanical engineer looking after the golf ball typewriters. And uh, people are either nice to me and say, I remember those, or the nastiest, I don't remember those, Phil. They were early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got a clue what that is. Yeah, that before, a... before you carry on, though, how did you um, just skip over? I bought my own flat at 19. How? Yes. How? Um, in those days, 95% mortgage. I'd saved a little bit of money, not a lot, a couple of grand. It wasn't an expensive flat. It was £19,000. So, uh, you know, not 5% of that wasn't a huge amount of money. So I managed to get the mortgage. Um, I had my IBM salary to back me up at that point. Mm. So 
uh, it was a relatively easy concept and mortgages were very strict in those days it was two and a half or up to three times your salary and that was it yeah so I just scraped in under that for 19 and a half thousand pounds from a flat and and I bought it. Um, interesting enough, but people say, well, did your dad help you at this point? No, not really, no. My dad helped me in many, many, many ways. He also helped me to understand the, the theory of halves. So he would actually say, well, okay, I'll, you want a motorbike? Yeah, I want a motorbike. Well, you buy the motorbike, I'll buy your jacket and your helmet. Um, so I had to do that bit of it first before he would chip in with the rest right. of it. And he always taught me that valuable lesson. You've got to do it for yourself if you want any help from anybody else. Don't expect it on a plate because you ain't going to get it. Mm. Um, I mean, dad could afford to do it, but he chose to do this with me, which is uh, something I've carried throughout my life. So, nice. um, sorry, sorry, was, so, yeah. so golf ball typewriters, golf ball typewriters, yeah, <laughs> just uh, 500 adjustments in this golf ball typewriter. Some of your uh, uh, more mature users like me would, would recommend them and say they were fantastic machines, they were worth 450 pounds in the early 80s. That's a wow. huge amount of money. And everybody had one. If you had an IBM golf ball typewriter, that was the business. That was the place to be. And, of course, in those days, as an engineer, um, I was going out visiting lots and lots of people every day, doing service calls on these things. And I got a bit of the gift of the gab at that point. And um, I started selling service contracts to customers. And uh, the IBM was fairly arrogant in those days. It's, um, they were the market leaders in many, many scenarios of computers and hardware and software. Um, and there's a famous saying, you never get fired for buying IBM. Mm. And they perpetuated this rather arrogant slogan throughout most of the 80s. And it was true, because if you went with IBM and it fell over, well, you've been to the best. Therefore, it wasn't your fault. And this whole mantra and this arrogance was sort of bred into you as an engineer, as an IBM, really. Um, so I became you know, quite, quite chipper about life. I was selling service contracts, fixing machines, doing quite well. Um, I was the youngest engineer ever in the UK, uh, which is interesting. They were part mm. of an experiment, which worked well for me, and it worked well for them as well. Um, hit a bit of a hiccup in 1985, being chased by three police cars trying to arrest me for drinking and driving, which they <laughs> successfully did. Um, so at the age of 21, I had lost my license quite rightly. Oh, wow. Um, and I was so you were drinking and driving, it wasn't mistaken. I really like, was, yeah. Right, okay. was, uh, I did it once in my life, and that was that. And I've never done it since, obviously, but uh, that was my mistake. So that set me back a bit. So, um, true to form, pick up the phone and be dad. Got a bit of a problem here. He says, We'll meet. He said, So we met up, and uh, he said, Right, so you've got three options. You can either carry on as though nothing's happened and take a copy of your license. You can either, um, <laughs> uh, there's a couple of options. I like your dad. Oh, yeah. Or you can... <laughs> By the way, my dad, when he came out of the army, drove for two years on a tank license. All right. He didn't have a driving license at all. So he was. <laughs> can, I, can I just top that one? Um, I, I lost my dad in 2006. He oh, never sorry. he never had a license ever. And he really? died. At, yeah. And he died at 66. I don't know how the hell he used to get away with it every year, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I did the right thing and confessed to my management at IBM and got the old eye rolls and thought, goodness me. And I, I thought, I've lost my job. I lose my flat. I've lost everything. It was a really hard moment in time. And I talked to my managers and they basically said, look, go to court, find out what's going to happen and then we'll talk. So I thought, OK, so I went to court. I got a 12 month ban. Um, so I went to talk to my managers. I said, right, we've created for you the worst patch in England. Oh, nice. I said, OK, where's that? I said, it's northwest London, Marleybourne, Euston, King's Cross, Camden Town. And I said, uh, OK, um, I said, here's a free bus pass for a year. 
here's a free train pass for a year. Here's a free train that tube and rail and bus pass for London. You're going to get up at six o'clock in the morning. You'll be down there for eight o'clock. You'll be working. And this is your penance, if you like, but it's also your opportunity. Right. It's the worst patch in England. There's about 22 service calls. An engineer can handle about 14, usually maximum. And of course, with it being in London, people driving into engineers driving to London, they sort of went in for a quick fix most of the time. So I realised that there was probably lack of attention to fixing it permanently, mm. fixing the problem, not servicing it correctly. So I worked my socks off. Um, I was down there at sort of seven o'clock in the morning and I came back at nine o'clock at night. And, and for about six months, I worked my tail off in this patch in the probably worst conditions, walking up and down the Marlborough Road, wore a pair of shoes out every three months. Um, that's what I did. Service calls came down from 21 to about three. Wow. So I, mm. I cracked it. And of course, then I got my license back and a car. And uh, then I moved from Essex over to Luton. And everybody said, how did you manage all that? This is not quite right, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was I was working for it. Um, and I got a service award for all that work and sent to Venice for four days with the convention. So I sort of said, there's okay. nothing, not quite right, this. But, uh, <laughs> but it was through sheer hard work. And then I basically built my career around fixing computer equipment. Then I graduated from golf ball typewriters into computers uh, ended up on the mainframes, the big ones, the huge mainframe farms under the ground in, in Warwick, uh, where if you go down to the basement, you'll find all these computer files where the lights turn on in front of you and turn off behind you, uh, where you fix things at 3 a.m. because that's convenient for the customer. Mm. Um, so I got into that and I got a bit bored and wanted to get into sales. And they said, well, it's 1989, can't do it, headcount freeze. So I said, well, I'll leave. And they said, well, don't want you to do that. But if, if you do, there's still nothing we can do about it. But come back in six months and we'll guarantee you a job in sales. I said, that's ridiculous. So anyway, I left and thought, right, I'll, I'll do some of this myself. And I set up my first company in a bedroom and I had a tin desk, a fax machine and about four old disk drives that somebody had given me it's worth about 800 pounds. That's all I had. And so I set myself up as a, as a broker, reseller, wheeler dealer in computer parts, peripherals and systems. Um, one thing I had to my advantage is my reputation in IBM was fantastic. And I was the, one of the top engineers looking after Europe and Middle East by the time I left. Um, so my reputation of making computers talk to each other, which sounds bizarre now because the internet wasn't around mm. and getting one system to talk to another was actually incredibly difficult and very technical. And we had all sorts of wires and monitors on lines and all sorts of things going on. And I was very good at that. So my reputation was good as I came out of IBM. And that sort of gave me the push into the market. They said, oh, it's Phil Webb, he's, you know. And so I was riding high for a, a six months to a year before the, the effect wore off. So I managed to basically cobble together some sales, service a customer. I knew nothing about business. Did about a quarter of a million year one, which I was very pleased about. Wow. Um, but it's just buying and selling and margins on, on equipment, which I understood. And then, of course, I met, as you talked about, Albert Humphrey, Humph to his mates. And um, I got a phone call because one of my engineers said, I've got this guy I need to speak to you, Phil. I said, who is he? He said, it's Albert Humphrey. I said, never heard of him. So he said, he phoned me up and he's, he's American by birth. So he's a young man. He says, I can make you rich. And I said, well, <laughs> nah, you're all right. Thanks, Humphrey. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And, uh, so I didn't, I didn't and he kept phoning me. He kept saying, I can help your business. I can do this. I can do that. I, I, I suppose I better meet him. Uh, thank goodness I got over myself because that was the start of a, a fantastic friendship and an incredible learning experience for me from one of the most prolific management scientists in the world, frankly. Um, he developed in 1966, as you said, the SWOT analysis, originally called SOFT, by the way. 
It right. stood for satisfactory opportunities, faults and threats. And that was a small piece in the jigsaw puzzle that he created a whole change management program called Team Action Management. And so that was how I started in business change in my own business, which allowed it to grow to 6.7 million pounds, 52 staff members making some substantial profits. And I sold that in 96. That was my first. Uh, so was that was that business the one you started buying and selling computer parts? Yeah. Right. OK. Yeah. So year one was quarter million. Year two was about 1.2. Year three was about 3.4. Year four, 6.7. And then we improved the margins for a couple of years and then sold out partially successfully. So uh, because it was an earn out contract, they never work. I wouldn't recommend one to anybody. So. Yeah, I know um, a couple of people that have, that have done them, but I, I don't know the ins and outs. So, no, no. so okay. I guess my key drivers were all about innovation, um, all about the art of the possible. And I was fascinated with what could be done with technology. Mm. And then in business, I started to learn about how a business works. And that quite I understood it. It was perfectly logical. It was like the schematic diagram of any computer. So it was dead easy for me to understand how it worked, how things fitted together, how finance worked. I learned that very quickly. And that launched my career into business. So, so I guess my background drivers are really my dad, um, mm. Albert Humphrey in business, um, uh, and a desire to succeed at least as well as my father. And that was obviously the, the key thing and, and always has been, if I'm honest. Um, mm. Make your dad proud. I'm one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, so, so you met Humph while you still had your first big business that that yeah. business that went to 6.7 and then obviously that continued that friendship and and partnership so so what happened when you earned out sold out what happened next uh 97 that would have been so didn't do a lot i started looking at virtual reality in business because in 1995 i had this I became a pest to my own business, to be honest. <laughs> I had a management team and they did all the work of buying and selling. We had big corporates like NatWest, Ministry of Defence and people that we supplied. We also had an international side that brokered all over the world. Um, and we had a little gem in the middle of Nijmegen in Holland, which I managed to crack. And it was the returns warehouse for Digital Equipment Corporation, which is the second largest computer company in the world. And their returns warehouse, those people that had wrongly ordered it, it had arrived, they didn't want it anymore. It was surplus stock, I ended up in this warehouse and I managed to get access to this warehouse with their blessing. And I walked around it once a quarter like a kid in the sweet shop because there were systems there that were retailing at sort of 60, 70,000 pounds. Uh, you can have it for eight. Really? Okay. So I used to buy this on the basis, you don't sell it in Europe. That was the right. key. Somebody sold it to the States and the States were scratching their heads saying, it's normally us selling to you, we're cheaper than you and you've got this incredible deal. Mm. And I shipped all this stuff off to America and we turned about three million pounds with America on that basis. So um, that was basically the, the, the gems of the business um, were around that. Sorry, what was your question? I've lost track of my thought. For no, no. Um, yeah. So basically what I was interested in is when you sold that business, yeah. what, what happened next? Because I knew you already were with Humph at that point. So yeah. So obviously Humph and I stayed in touch, didn't do a lot in 97. I was renovating a farmhouse at the time. Then I set up a joint venture uh, with BDO in Manchester. And uh, we started looking at putting a, ma a management uh, consultancy stroke IT consultancy company together and, uh, and growing that on the back of Manchester, almost like a parasitic marketing technique. We'll talk to all the clients of BDO. Uh, we'll flush this service throughout them and add some value to the clients. Um, that was all good in theory. Um, but I'm not an accountant and I wasn't qualified. Although I do teach finance today, 
strategic finance, not bookkeeping. The accountants sort of put their glasses on halfway down the nose and said, you're not qualified, young man, you're not one of us. Therefore, we won't allow you to have access to our client base. So it ended up all the clients of, of this BDO joint venture company was actually off client base. So uh, we started advising the government um, on small business service as it got set up. And we were doing work outside of the firm, a couple of clients in the firm, but it wasn't the sort of the, the panacea of opening the doors and suddenly all these clients would be available to us to talk to. Didn't happen. So again, I had to almost start all over again, really. So it wasn't quite what we envisaged. But nevertheless, was that you and Humph or was that you and someone no, else? No, that's just me on my own um, right. with a small team that I hired as well. Humph and I were in daily, weekly contact anyway. Uh, he'd become one of my family members by this point. I went to his eight-year-old daughter's um, school plays and all sorts with him when I was in London. Uh, so we were very sort of close as a family. Um, he'd, uh, he'd obviously got his much younger wife and a young daughter. Uh, so even in his older years, he still had all those school plays and school reviews to go to. So I used to turn out with Humph and Miriam used to go as the parents of Stefania. And uh, I used to tag along because they asked me to. So the, the, the teachers were really confused because they had <laughs> mum and dad and then it was me. Who, who's he sat yeah, there yeah. smiling at me and saying, oh, she's doing very well. Um, so it's quite bizarre. But no, we we're very, very close. Uh, we, we met as often as possible. Um, and basically, Humph described me because he's American, obviously, as his English son almost. Mm. So um, his American children were in playwright, dentistry, doctors and, and whatever. And so they had no interest in Humph's work whatsoever. So... When he passed, sadly, in 2005, which was a shock, even though he's 79, it was still a huge shock to me. Um, and then suddenly he said he'd left all of his research to me in, in about 40 boxes, which he carefully filed and, and catalogued uh, over his years. How, so, did his, how did his, I know they, you, I heard this before that the, the kids had no interest in that sort of thing, but how did they feel about that? I don't think they had any, any knowledge of it before, since or after. They just, uh, there's very little contact. Humph, in his own way, was not close to his American children. Uh, right, they had all, okay. sorts of, all sorts of family politicking stuff going on, so he was never very close to them. Um, Stefania was into medical stuff as she grew older, and she's a, an accomplished medic in California right now, so again, no, no real interest. So there was me, and there was one or two others which he could have included, but he, he chose to leave everything to me, and I made him a promise that I would be the custody, custodian of his life's work. Um, so in 2014, frustrated a little bit because of the recession that followed 2007, but not getting it out there as much, this programme called Team Action Management. So I, I wrote the book. So um, Managing Constant Change, Leading Constant Change is actually the title of the book. Buy it on Amazon today if you want. And it's, um, it is the accumulation, the whole summary of Humphrey's life's work, everything he ever taught and knew. Um, it was with his blessing before he passed because I'd written his whole manual for him. And uh, he just chuckled. He said, this is my life's work. I said, yes, it is. He said, this is amazing. He said, so this is more than just the team action management product. This is actually all the background. I said, yes, it's all the whole lot. So he thought it was wonderful. And I got it all bound up and gave him a copy and his big beaming smile on his face. And so I converted that into a book and published that. That's my third book I've published. So. Are you able to um, give a very high line of what that is? Team action management. Well, it's it's basically all about solving the problem of how do chief execs and directors plan. So if you go back in time to the 50s, you had corporate planners that basically were internal consultants. They borrowed your watch to tell you a time. So they present this wonderful glossy plan to the chief exec and the board. But actually, the sales director and the finance director sat there thinking, 
that's my numbers. You're presenting my, you ask me. And so the corporate planner fell out of favour and eventually that they fell away as a function. But then who plans? And that was a question asked in 1964 when this think tank that Humphrey's part of came together. And so the methodology for corporate planning was the whole essence of team action management. It was originally called participative planning, but nobody could say participative planning very easily. No. So it, became, it became team action management in 1971. Uh, but it's all about involving everybody. Now, SWOT is, is mis, mistaught on most occasions. You end up with the four boxes on a screen with the SWOT in it. And you think you, you sit there with whoever you're talking to and you write all you do on your own and you write down all the things you can think of. But there's the rub. There's only one brain in there. Mm. So I can write what I think. And if I ask you, I also get the benefit of your ideas and input, which might be different to mine. And you might have different knowledge. You might have more knowledge in this area and I might have different knowledge over here. So it's all about bringing brains together. Um, imagine the whole workforce being able to input to that particular analysis and team action management is a methodology for doing just that. In 1962, I think it was, um, the psychologists at Stanford Research Institute in America gave these industrialists a big, thick tome of information. And they said, psychologically speaking, this is how teams work. This is why people think the way they do. This is what they do and how they react. This is the Bible of team management. And they took that and they turned a few pages, thought, we haven't a clue what this means. It's too many long words in it. Yeah. So they translated that into the team action management program. So when you run the program, which is rules based, step by step by step, like I could teach you, I could teach anybody mm. how to run it. And that book actually will, will teach you how it works as well. Then you're actually enacting the psychology of team psychology. Uh, so essentially, that's what team action management is. It brings together all the workers providing anonymous feedback against a statement of intent for change or development or growth. Everybody can comment positively, negatively, questioningly. I've had pictures come back. It's all anonymous, single form per submission. You get hundreds of them. Um, and then the team action management program is basically a way of filtering, sorting, uh, disseminating information, creating sub-projects, and all those sub-projects point back to that statement of intent that we started with. Everything is beautifully aligned. Now, in business, about 17% of companies have actually got their vision mission statements up here aligned with the internal operations, because normally it's set up by a board or a few people. It's a lovely document. They all think, oh, this is fantastic. This is our statement of strategy, intention and vision. It sits on that bookcase behind you. Mm. It comes out maybe in the boardroom. It maybe does. But then translating that into specific tactics and actions in the operations of the business is done by, on average, 17% of businesses. So what about the other 83? Well, they get busy. They end up, the directors end up working in the business. They don't work on the business. And so this disconnect is something which concerned Humph's team way back then. Still a concern today. Uh, directors spend little time on the business and too much time in the business. And if, if you get proper governance in place, you can solve it. Okay, so just for my simple brain, because um, I heard your um, podcast before and you talked about this box and people are, can anonymously put their, their stuff in and then, you know, so they feel secure that, you know, people are not looking at it and, and all of that. Um, so in simple terms, I'm a member of a team. I write down what I think. I put it in this box, as does a hundred other people or whatever. Yeah. You you take that information away to analyze it and do something with it. Is that right? Rather than the people above you. 
So the people who are in the management teams of, of the company you work for will be trained on how to run this program. We facilitate. Okay, got so you. they will all read probably for the first time about lots and lots of things they never knew happened. Uh, and I've seen management teams before. They said, well, why is that happening? That, that shouldn't be happening. But it is. And because as you go down filtered layers of management, as, as a, a worker on the ground floor, so to speak, if I report to my supervisor or my manager that there's a problem, I'm exposing myself individually to being a troublemaker, mm. wrong. Um, somebody has a different opinion. My co-workers think I'm a snitch for saying something's yeah. wrong because they've, in, they've enjoyed the perk of it being wrong for so long. All these different factors come into play. And so my ability to give an anonymous feedback, my have your say bit, if you like, anonymously to those very people who are senior enough and are operating the business to actually make something happen is a very powerful thing. Mm. Uh, you're skipping over all the layers of management. Temporarily, you have a completely flat structure in the company. And this is the concept of what we call fairness, because fairness is the second most powerful driver for human emotive response. So if you install a fair program, then people will respond. And so that's that's the idea behind that particular mechanism. And then the program picks up and it has certain things you must do and filtering and subcategorizing and then innovating the projects, which will then cumulatively make up the statement of work, which is then pushed back down into the business for the doing. So you might put a form in that says, I think this, I think that. Your coworker might say the opposite. So we don't solve the forms in that planning session. We account for them. We listen for them. We take a, take an understanding of it with a view to actually making something happen within a project. And those projects really are the drivers for the business. I was lucky enough to work with John Parnaby, who was um, Dr. John Parnaby, who was part of Lucas Aerospace, and he wrote a book called Managing by Projects. And it's, it's quite probably more relevant today than it ever has been because there is nothing in this world that's not changing right now. Uh, it's changing by the day, by the week, and managing by projects as opposed to this is what we're going to do for the next 12 months because mm. you won't. Something's going to happen. It's going to knock you off course. So having sub-projects which feather your business growth is a far more effective way of driving a business. We're in the, what they call the thousand year decade. Uh, and that's the hypothesis that says between 2020 and 2030, we're gonna make as much change and progress as humankind as we have done in the previous 1000 years. Think about that. Mm. That means every four days is equivalent to one year on average from the last thousand. The pace of change is blisteringly fast right now. Technology, biomedical, um, people's working pattern. I, I looked at that in 2019. I thought, nah, I'm not sure that can happen because people don't change that quickly. We are wedded to the norms. We're wedded to what worked before. We don't want, we don't like change. It exposes us personally. Yeah. We're fearful of change, generally speaking. There's a word for it, actually. And it's, it's a lovely word. Your viewers can remember it, maybe. Uh, it's called metathesiophobia. Metathesiophobia. It's the unwarranted un fear of change. Right, um, And we've all got it and it can perpetuate and grow in certain situations, but this fear of change will hold us back. So I thought 10 years to do a thousand years. No, I don't believe it really. And then COVID happened and suddenly everybody changed because we had to. Mm. Uh, if I told you two years ago, you'd be doing podcasts on Zooms and everything. No, we do that in studios. Mm. Or you can have all your meetings. You can be sat at home with your slippers on 
uh, and uh, sat in a, in a business suit for the top half and your beach shorts in the bottom half. No, I'm not going to stand up. And, uh, <laughs> um, but people wouldn't believe that. Um, you've got the right to work. For, that's ridiculous. Why would yeah. you do that? Uh, so all the norms have been shaken. And for that, I do believe this thousand year decade is happening. Yeah. So pace of change is massive. Team action management is a way of initiating, controlling and delivering change quickly, efficiently um, to the benefit of the business and all of its all its workers. So could you go in? Um, could you go into a massive organization, say like 45,000 people, but just deal with obviously one part of that? Or would you want to yeah. go in and deal with the whole 40,000? How would it work? Bit like eating an elephant, really, isn't it? It's one bite at a time. So mm. yeah, forty thousand is too big. You'd have you know yeah. seventy or eighty thousand feedback forms. It would take you a week to read them all. No, we go in there and look at specific situations. I'll give you an example. We went to talk to Edinburgh Council, mm. and they had a particular issue with the Estates Department. They wanted to try and settle down, so we were brought in and we just looked at just the Property and Estates Department of Edinburgh Borough Council, uh, and successfully got a change program running. Uh, which they then took over and, and very successfully delivered. So we look at sub-departments or indeed locations. If you're multi-located, then we'll take one location. Um, the, the usual rule is up to a thousand staff at a time. Yeah. That gives you a bite-sized chunk out of the elephant, if you wish. Okay, got you. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, it sounds amazing. Um, especially, I'm just thinking, you know, thinking about uh, my partner's company and, you know, the stuff that goes on there. I mean, it is massive, but um, yeah, something like that would be so useful. Um, so it's useful, a, you know. You, and, know. you normally find the answers lie in the workforce anyway. Yeah. They, all, they all know the answers. It's just management perhaps haven't cottoned on or haven't got the resources or the communication connectivity to make sure they understand it. And the layers of authority often swerve us away from the true goal. Um, I won't call it empire building or ivory towers, but it happens, you know, and, and that circumvents all of this internal political rubbish. Yeah. And gets to the truth of the matter in a fair way, which motivates everybody towards a common goal. So that's what we did. And that appealed to me. And I guess this whole fairness thing has, has gone throughout my life. Um, it's a theme that I understood before I met Humph and, He's built his program on fairness. Um, and in 1987, when all the trees came down with Michael Fish's famous storm, yeah. um, I was working for IBM in North London, and me and two of my colleagues drove down from Luton, where we lived, into our North London territories, where the tubes weren't working, and there was all sorts of we couldn't get in. There were priority one calls being logged all over London, and nobody to do them. So myself and my two colleagues said, right, forget the patch, forget the P2, P3 calls, P1 calls only today. And we shot all over London, fixing the priority urgent calls and sorting it. Mm. And our management team phoned us up about three or four days later. They said, just want to really thank you for what you did. And I said, it's our job. And they said, well, we'd like to offer you a celebratory lunch and a, and a gift voucher each. Uh, and all. I said, I'm going to refuse. Oh. because that wasn't fair because my colleagues who couldn't get into work because the tubes weren't working they had no way of getting to work wasn't their fault necessarily was it I was doing my job and yeah okay in their eyes I went above and beyond but that's actually just me anyway and that was my colleagues as well so the fairness bit I think is always sort of woven in the social justice bit if you like mm. has always been there woven into the way I work and I guess goes back to my dad I suppose he's uh installed my values from a very early age i was about to say that's one of your core values isn't it fairness yes. for sure yeah um 
Okay, so I've, I've sort of jumped around a little bit. So we were in the late 90s. Um, so, and I know that let's, let's talk about your fantastic new uh, charity technology platform. What happened between then and now? When did you start this new um, blockchain technology and sort of how did you get to that point? Okay, so we're talking about a 15 year gap now. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, 19, 1990. You've got five minutes, Phil. <laughs> uh, I'm, joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, first thing I did when I sold the business is um, I wrote the book, The Small Business Handbook. And I thought, I haven't got a degree. It was always a chip on my shoulder. And I thought, I'll write the book instead of having a degree. Okay. Um, so, I did. And uh, it was a practical step by step guide. There's about 15 chapters in it. And myself and my then wife wrote that wrote that book I, I wrote most of it she wrote the bit on HR and, and mental health and things which is way ahead of its time at the time mm. but uh, so this book was very successful it was Financial Times published it uh, it was one of their best-selling business books for a few years um, so I was very nice. pleased about that yeah didn't have a degree but I plugged that gap with my book right um, and then I wrote another one thinking I was an author but then that flopped it didn't do so well so uh, that was called Small Businesses Built to Last uh, so I thought right I've had enough of writing let's do something different and um, I then set up, um, goodness me, where am I now? 1998. I set up a company that dealt with digital asset management. It was a customer, actually, who had a problem. And uh, he was a software, little software company bolted on the side of a grinding wheel company just because he was interested in it. And they, were, they, they owned the digital rights, the Bayer Tapestry. It's always captured my imagination that. I said, well, this is really, it's called Image Resource. And it was where companies took images. And don't forget, in those days, we didn't have Dropbox and clouds and everything. They were images which filled up hard drives in a physical computer in the corner of your office. What happens if the computer crashed? You lost your images unless it was backed up. Could you share them? Yeah, you could share them on a, on a one megabyte connection. It took ages to send the photograph. So this was the issues facing uh, companies in the turn of the, um, turn of the 2000s. So we set up and wrote one of the state-of-the-art systems uh, which enabled us to take uh, this particular concept to market. Uh, Debenhams is one of our first big customers and they'd lost an image with some very high, highly paid model who was modeling their clothing. And because they'd lost their images, it caused them to say, well, where are our images? They were scattered all over the company. There was no central resource of images. So we took a piece of software and gave them the ability to centralize all their images, massive savings, much better security. That sounds crazy now, doesn't it? Bloody hell. It does. It's ridiculous. <laughs> the problem that, you know, it was yesteryear. Yeah. But we solved the problem. We went to National Grid. We had the Royal Society for the Prevention of um, RSPB, whatever that's, the bird people. Birds, yeah. So we had the bird people. Uh, and then we got uh, Action Images, and they take images of sports people. So there's a click of David Beckham scoring a goal in those days. And that was then sat phoned up into, the, into a connection into a room where people were tapping away, putting metadata inside the image that then became available for the newspapers and the magazines and still shots for people who wanted to buy them. That was their model. And we managed to get, and this sounds a bit crazy these days, but we managed to get a wildcard search on the metadata of a single photograph, three million images in less than seven seconds. Um, even today, that's impressive, to be mm. honest. Um, but then it was impossible. How have you done that? And so we had a fantastic uh, Chinese programmer. He was amazing. He worked for us. And uh, so we built up this company. Then we sold it on. Um, and then I set up a company dealing in high growth startups. So then 
the famous business link organization uh, had this contract that they were pushing out to experts who had done it. Thankfully, they did that rather than academia trying to run it. So um, there are people who actually practically been out there and done it. And they hired us in as consultants to look after aspirational high growth startup businesses. And that became a bit of a fur line rut because they paid us too much money to walk away. But it was repetitive and it was grant funded and you knew it was going to end, uh, as all grant systems do. So I did that for a couple of years and then sold out to my business partner because I was fed up with him and he's quite lazy. So uh, moved on uh, and then lost Humph in 2005. Um, so that then set myself up just as a custodian of his platform, as his program and TAM UK, Team Action Management, TAM Tam UK was the trading name of my business, and I started delivering his programs after he died uh, to several large companies quite successfully, dropping on quite nicely. 2007 fell off a cliff, yeah, as yeah. everybody did. So, sort of struggled to recover at that point, and for various personal reasons, sort of lost my mojo a little bit for a few years, if I'm honest. Um, did enough, you know, it's amazing when, you, when your head says you need to earn X. It's exactly what you'll earn. Mm. You won't earn any more because you're not motivated or, or wired correctly to do it. Mm. So it's all about how the head works. And as I go through life, I'm firmly of the belief that everything is in your head. Everything. You can be anything and do anything. It's in your head. It's the way you put your brain to go. It's the way you've chosen to wire your brain. And I say choose because you also have a choice to rewire your brain using various techniques um, from CBT, NLP, hypnosis, you can rewire the neurons in your brain to form different, more effective patterns. So think it and it can become right. Um, and if you think it often enough, a, a really silly example is when you go and buy a new car and you go and buy a dark blue car and then you suddenly start noticing, don't you, all the other dark blue cars out there and you never realise there were so many. It's because your brain wasn't switched in that way. Having switched it into blue cars, you'll notice all the other blue cars. So quick, some very a, simple things. Just a quick question on that. You, you, you're very much talking about the head there. What's your thoughts? Because I'm a very spiritual person, very energy driven. So what's your thoughts on intuition and the energy side of it as opposed to the brain? Um, well, intuition and energy, I would separate. Um, intuition is scientific fact. There's no such thing as a the black art of intuition. It is scientifically easy to understand because if you take your brain it will absorb information every single second of the day it will absorb smell touch taste sight feeling temperature motion as you're sat there right now you'll be tasting the air because if you suddenly smell something you actually taste stuff more quicker than you smell it sometimes so if the burning toast taste hits your tongue and goes up your nose that will immediately force a reaction to give you attention to that particular issue but there is no burning toast right now, so we don't think about it. The air that we breathe, we're breathing in and out, so therefore it's all right. We don't think about that too much either. The temperature, it's sort of all right. Unless I bring it to your attention, you might say, some your fingers are a bit chilly. And so we, we just basically block out, generalise, distort and delete a lot of information. It's still in there. It goes in. It goes in, in in order for it to be rejected. And so essentially your brain is this incredible supercomputer that absorbs information, at, you know, millions of lines of stuff every minute and chucks about 80% of it out as being irrelevant or not worth keeping, but it's still there. So your intuition is basically the observation, the hearing, the, the, the understanding of a situation in micro, micro pieces of information. And if micro pieces of information go in, 
eventually they stick together because our brain is an associative organ. It associates everything. So information, say, if I said a word, you might say, the last time I heard that word was then, or the last time it felt this way, it was at that point, and I was at the beach of the seaside, the sun and the waves and the salty tape, and you'll automatically associate things. Um, it's, it's sort of proven that female brains are much better at that than men, um, because associative uh, cognition for, for women is a second nature. For men, it's a, it's a learned art. Um, it's just the way we're wired, essentially. So there's some genetic reasons why women are far more intuitive, if you call it that, than men. But men can still learn to be intuitive. And it's all about just listening to those tiny bits of information. Uh, there's been so many times when you just think, oh, let's just rub it out of the way. And then something happens. You think, I knew that was going to happen. Mm. Yeah, you did know it was going to happen and you ignored it. That's mm. what happens. Many years ago, I was filling up my car. It was a dark, horrible night. My washer had run out. I stopped at a garage. I put the water in there to fill up my screen wash. And as I chunked it down, it had been a salty, horrible week and it had been mucky and horrible. And I knew as I got back in my car that that clunk wasn't the right clunk. <laughs> All right. And so halfway up the dual carriageway, the bonnet flew up. I was doing about 70 miles an hour at the time. Oh, my God. Um, and, that, and I knew it. And I, I kicked myself. Yeah, I know. You didn't go and check. Yeah. And I knew it. And my brain had gone ding, ding, ding. Go look at your bonnet. And, no, it's fine. It's closed. Bang. I'm tired. You know, and you ignore it. But you do know. Uh, so intuition is a fact. So mm. always listen to it because it's mm. your brain assimilating information associatively ringing the little bell saying there's a pattern forming here, there's a picture forming here, go and pay it some attention, even if it's only to look at it and say, no, it's okay. But to ignore it is, is ridiculous. Um, energy is an interesting one. Um, I, was, I was exposed to something called Reiki. Um, I'm a Reiki healer. Uh, and Reiki, when I first got to it, I thought, this is a load of... This is a load of rubbish, yeah. Absolutely, no, something <laughs> similar. And I thought, no way, this is just ridiculous. Who's kidding who, you know? And, and so I looked at it in that way, and I suddenly <laughs> started thinking, well, let me, before I discount anything, I'm a great learner, so let me go and learn, let me go and see. So I started reading about quantum physics, and it's about the fact, you know, quantum physics is a massive subject I won't mm. go into now, but the quantum physics understanding gives you the ability to say, well, actually... That has to be right. Now, whether every Reiki healer is attuned to be able to do that stuff, but the theory is perfectly sound. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. Energy does transfer. It can never be destroyed. So when you had that Reiki session, how did you feel? I didn't feel anything, actually, because my brain was pretty close to it. Do right. you feel the warmth? Do you feel the heat? No. <laughs> this is rubbish. And it's not, really. And so you didn't fall asleep. You didn't go I didn't. But then... No, but then you have to be open to these things to start with. I think it's like hypnosis. Everybody says, don't hypnotize me. I said, well, I can't just hypnotize you like that. Darren Brown doesn't do that, actually. He practices, he selects his people very carefully, preconditions them before you see the bit on TV where somebody says sleep and they go dunk. Mm. Um, it's a preconditioning. So you can't just hypnotize somebody that does not want to be hypnotized. Um, but hypnosis is a wonderfully relaxing state of being. And I've mm. been hypnotized many times. I love it. It's brilliant. Don't want to come back sometimes. It's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and Reiki is the same pre premise, really. It's about perception and it's about how the person feels. Um, but anything that makes anybody feel nice is a good thing, frankly. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, quantum physics absolutely proves that Reiki is a real thing. Um, so I'm so a you need the science. You need the science to prove it. I need it. the proof. I really yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, you're one of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of them, yeah. <laughs> you're one of them. <laughs>
<laughs> you're like my partner yeah completely yeah. the same although um I, I've given him Reiki a few times now and he he just calls it magic he's just like I, I don't understand how it works but you know it's great sort of thing I, um, I do it on my dog actually so I can calm my dog down just literally by putting my hands on him and uh, now whether it's it's not warmth actually he's a husky he's got a whopping big thick coat yeah. so he can't feel my warmth absolutely through there I'm sure of it so it's actually just about the physical touch and sensation uh, whether that transfers energy I don't know I'd like to think it does yeah I definitely calm, I can calm him down with my own thinking patterns I've become known as a bit of an animal whisperer mm. so I, hip- I hypnotized a goat once in, in yeah. trans- <laughs> <laughs> just just by moving my hands across his head like that and just talking to it and it was absolutely his eyes just went funny and he's just i was gonna there. say how do you know he was hypnotized he just, she she's actually a, a pregnant goat she just stood there and she didn't thought she was a duck ages <laughs> didn't, didn't move for ages so oh really oh wow. <laughs> i love goats as well um we, we have digressed um we we were talking about Humphrey had passed in 2005 you'd lost your mojo um and then I can't imagine you losing your mojo because you're a very you know ambitious driven well from what I've seen the little I've seen uh, up to this point um but obviously it happens to everybody doesn't it you know we all have our slumps um we always talk to people and say how did you become successful oh we did this this and this and this they didn't they had that, they had that problem. Things went really pear-shaped. They had a mental breakdown. They recovered. They did it. They don't talk about the negatives. And it's a big failing because everybody thinks there's some perfect people in this world. That's that right. Success. Yeah. Not the case. Mm. And so, yeah, I did lose my mojo. And that's uh, a mental state of being that I don't like. It's stodgy. It's like wading through treacle. You can't get sharp. Um, it's not a nice feeling, to be honest. But we, you know, most people will be affected by it. Those people that say they're not are either incredibly lucky or, or lying. Yeah, uh, because it happens to everybody. It doesn't matter what you think you are or what other people think you are, that will happen. And so, yeah, it happens to me and it still happens today sometimes. And mm. I get the odd day when I'm thinking, do you know what? I just don't feel I'm able to do anything, but I don't want to do it. I just not feel I'm able to do it. Mm. Still get those days. And I'm yeah. sure everybody does. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so I, I lost my mojo a little bit. And I was, um, I got a phone call from a guy who works for BAFTA and he's a guy called Paul. And he said, Phil, he says, can we get this? Um, I've got a charity ride on a motorbike. He says, can you, um, going from Ace Cafe, the famous Ace Cafe on the M40 in London, we're going up to the Squires Cafe at Tadcaster. He said, again, two, you know, two very famous biking uh, venues. And we're doing this ride for charity. So could you do anything at the top end? And he said, can you do a sort of little ride out and get some more money? I said, yeah, I can do that. So um, anyway, I said, I'll do better than that. I'll do three ride outs. So I'll get three organised. And it became known, I branded it, the Cloverleaf Tour. So that was the brand of it. And I was put in touch with a charity, a little charity specialising in neuroblastoma, which is a childhood cancer, naught to five years old, it affects children. And I knew nothing about that. I knew nothing about charities. I'd given to charity, but thought nothing more of it, despite the fact I've been in business for 30 odd years. And um, so we started raising some money. Uh, And this happened and we raised some thousands of pounds and we gave the money to the charity who were effusively thankful. And I'm thinking, it's not a lot of money. Why are you so pleased and so, you know, literally crying about it? And uh, they said, oh, there's a keeper's going for months. I said, it's less than 10 grand. It couldn't keep you going. You know, most businesses going for a day or a week, frankly. So why, why is this happening to charities? And I started getting interested. And as you know, I learn. So <laughs> I went to talk to lots of people. And I found out that all the small charities were pretty much in the same boat. They didn't have a 
not being funny, but they didn't have a clue what they were doing when it came to running a business. They did their best, but they were actually what I call artisans, people who are brilliant at what they do. And their brilliance was helping people in the way they were set up to do that, have whatever that charity was all about. But running a business, oh, we're not a business, they said. Well, actually you are. It's just you don't pay tax because you've got charitable status. That's what charitable status means. You've got social objects and therefore you do not pay tax. And so, but you are a business. No, no, we're not a business. We hate that. We've not, we've, we've left businesses to come and work for charities because we didn't want to be a business. So, so, you know, you've got to behave as a business, otherwise you won't survive. And I had these discussions. And so I thought, well, is that, is that all charities? So I went to speak to some bigger ones and uh, we, we nicknamed them the Bugatti charities, actually, because uh, they ended up with so much money and so much reserves. And there are, you know, charities advertising your television today and uh, people that sell you pup dates and things like that. They've got oodles of cash. And I mean, a lot of it. And charities are bound by the constitution to so only hold so much in reserves. So what do you do with all that surplus? If you're not going to deliver more services, you've got this surplus sat there that you can enjoy. And unfortunately, many charities take that to a little bit of an extent that says, well, yeah, they've got nice glass fronted buildings and they've got some posh cars and they pay their chief execs several hundred thousand pounds a year. Some of them warrant it and some of them don't. But because the, some of them don't, people lost trust with them. They're not mm. quite sure what happens to your money. Mm. <clears throat> I give you my £50. What are you going to do with it? Is that going to be the chief exec's lunch? Or is it going to go to help the children I'm supposed to be helping by this charity? And people sort of disconnected and lost trust a little bit. And the methods that the large charities use basically scams your data, collects it all. If you give them a £5 once, they'll be on the phone to you the next week emails you gave us this what can you give us that can you serve a standing order give us some money in your will uh, and all this stuff you'll see it on the television all the time it's basically a data driven entity and it's all designed to extract money from you and i as often as possible and as much as possible and when you dry up then move on to the next one and so this leaves a bit of a bad taste it's not really right that you should keep asking and asking and asking i i wanted to give you some money once but don't keep asking me. Don't keep saying you need to give us this and show me pictures of, of you know, pitiful pictures of small mm. children crying with flies on their faces and think we need some money now. Well, I'm not sure about that. So there's a bit of a mistrust there. There's a, a poor management structure down at the small ends. Um, and there's 167,000 charities in the UK. It's an awful lot. Yeah. So if you draw a straight line, five mile radius around where you're sat right now and all your listeners can do this, draw a radius of five miles, draw a circle. And within that circle, on average, there's 140 charities. But do you know who they are? And you don't because the small charities don't operate as businesses and don't have any marketing sense to get themselves out there. Um, every month's a cash flow emergency for them. So it's basically this was a problem. And I thought this isn't fair back to fairness again yeah uh went to talk to businesses and they said oh yeah yeah we give to charities you know once a year we'll do this or do that or we might volunteer a bit and uh, most businesses and particularly the small ones and especially the family driven ones all support charities or community groups of some description um they all do it because that's what the sort of people they are some do it better than most but it's a sad fact that uh 75 of all company giving to charities goes to about 1% of charities. Mm. So you go around your town, you've got the usual children's hospices, the cancer cares. I'm not taking anything away from them, by the way, but they're branded. They know how to get their brand out there. They become trusted. 
Uh, they do a good job, therefore people go to them as opposed to looking up the small little charity in the local village that helps a dozen children or a, a hundred elderly people with certain access needs or whatever it is that they do, but they're not on anybody's radar. The companies turn around and said, well, we'd love some local stuff, but we, we don't find, we don't know where they are. How do we find them? And so this was the problem coming together. So from that, I decided I'll have a go at writing a platform that brought the two parties together. And then the investors and community platform was born as an idea. <clears throat> a friend of mine gave me some software from a peer-to-peer -peer debt funding company that I was non-exec of at the time. Um, so we took this and ripped the code out and put new stuff in. So took out the loans, put in the donations, took out other aspects, put in volunteering and gifting. I wanted it all in one place. It's really important because nobody else did it and still don't. Um, so everything in one place, every aspect of giving, volunteering, pro bono volunteering or professional volunteering, gifting of anything, uh, donations and fundraising, five ways to give, all in one place. So we did this and got loads of applause and traction from companies that said, that's brilliant. Now we can find our charities. When that gets going, there'll be you know, tens of thousands of charities. Great choice. Um, we love the fact you earn community credits for every act of giving. This is fantastic. Love it to pieces. So we started to think about making that beta platform into its, into its primary um, release. But then we realized that because I borrowed the software, um, we're trying to make a car out of a washing machine. So we had to start again in 2018 and recode the entire platform with the, an IBM incubator partner um, who have done an amazing job of building this thing from the ground up with all the learnings we got from the beta platform, wove that into the specification, which I set, and it was built then and the data is held in the blockchain. And everybody says, that's really overkill, Phil, really is. You don't need all that. Well, we don't need all that for a UK market. No, we don't. But this is something that could go global because everybody needs it and why not mm. so it helps charities um we have a people will say well who's your customers well the customers are the businesses because they will pay a very small amount of money for the privilege of consolidated reports for all they're giving that's the customers our users are people like you and i who will basically tap away and volunteer our our time whether that's from the workplace or whether it's just at the weekends so our users are individuals our customers are the businesses our product, sounds a bit weird this, our product is the charities, community groups, schools, and not-for-profits. And when I say product, I always say, well, imagine walking into a shop and you want to basically buy something. You'll go to the section you want. So you go to the baked bean section, you pull a can of baked beans off that you like the look of, pop it in your basket, go to the till and pay for it. Imagine going to find somewhere to, to support. You go into the shop you go to the area which so it might be elderly care, it might be medical, it might be children, it might be mental health section. You'll pull a project. We've got projects on our platform. The tin of beans becomes a project. Pull a project off, put it in your basket, go to the checkout, transact. That's either volunteer, give money or whatever. And then you get the receipt because everybody needs a receipt. That receipt is an impact statement because the charities provide that for the person that gives or the company that gives. So where's your money gone? was a question I raised a few minutes ago. How do I know you spent it on the right things? Because a project on our platform is like a legal briefcase. It says you can only use the money for that. And you agree to sign up to that point. So when you go to the till and that's the receipt you get, that's the impact statement for the money received against that project. So it's restricted to that project. And you know your money's gone to the right place. And the impact state statement, the receipt, if you like, confirms it. So that's the whole idea behind it. 
And that came as a result of the Cloverleaf tool. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, I knew, I knew about it from listening to Bethan's podcast and, and, um, and obviously seeing bits and bobs on the internet. So, uh, and I, I think it's awesome. Um, and I've been telling people about it. So I, I want to help grow it as much as I can. Thank you. Um, well, anybody listening can simply log on, sign up as an individual. It's free forever. Mm. Um, that's support in itself. So that's all you need to do. And whether you do anything at that point or do nothing, come back to it later, that's yeah. great. Give us your registration, show us you care, show us you're interested, because that helps us in the way that we portray the company and portray the, the platform. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Phil. Uh, we've gone over the hour. So um, I think two things. One, how can people find out more about that and about you? And, and also, I like to leave these um, conversations with whatever you feel called to share. So how can people find out more about you and your project? Okay, well, there's two ways. You can either go to two domains. One is www, if you're interested in me, www.web.co.uk, web with two Bs, and you'll find me and the support services I offer to businesses in that sphere of my life. Go to www.investorsincommunity.org and you'll find the platform in all of its glory. Hit the sign-up button, create yourself an individual account, please, and that just shows us that we have interest. Uh, it'll never cost you a penny, and you mm -hmm. can use it if you wish for your, your volunteering, your cash donation, your fundraising. Uh, other people uh, are very famous for being able to fundraise in the marketplace, but don't forget, they charge the charities, and they take an inflated charge on your donation every time. So that was one of the principles of fairness, is those who are asking for help shouldn't be charged for the privilege. Mm. So investorsandcommunity.org gets you to the platform web.co.uk gets you to me so that's how you can connect with me i'll be delighted mm. to talk to anybody who's interested cool and anything you feel called to share in the last couple of minutes um i guess we talked a little bit about losing mojo and having those down moments in life sometimes there's only one person that's ever going to get you out of that trough and that's the person that stares back at you from the mirror so you've got to rewire your head. You've got to focus on what it is you want and then decide to go and get it. Because until you've made that decision, you'll always be at the behest and be called somebody else. So take control of your head, wire it for success, enjoy the ride, never stop learning and enjoy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure. I knew it would be. Um, and I've, I've learned some more stuff today and I loved your little... Uh, stories about your dad as well so um thank you my pleasure thank you for having me if you enjoyed that conversation or were inspired in any way please please leave me a review on itunes it's the best way for other people to find my podcast and be inspired themselves well i really hope you enjoyed today's episode and perhaps the story resonated with your own life or reminded you that perhaps you're also settling for second best. I've been helping people from a young age and realising that there is more to life than what they are currently settling for. My desire is to give others the love to confidently and respectfully know their value so that they feel joy and are empowered to make a fulfilling difference. If that sounds good to you and you'd like to reach out and connect, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash Mel Clark Coaching, that's Clark with an E, 
or instagram.com forward slash Mel Clark coaching. Enjoy your day.